Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I am with Mijan Celie To Byers, EDD. She is a visiting scholar with the Interdisciplinary Center for Innovative Theory and Empirics at Columbia University, inaugural leadership member with the Banff Center New Fundamentals in Creative Ecology, as well as the Aspen Institute's Franklin Project, and the lead designer and facilitator for the public policy digital storytelling and documentation training with women organizers who labor for social change at the Steinem Initiative at Smith's College. So that sounds very impressive. <laughs> but like, who are you, Mijan? Oh, oh, that's a bigger question. Um, I was joking before we started recording. I'm a lady explorer. Uh, for the last, oh, decade, I've been traveling quite a bit. Uh, more year, Some years more than others. Um, this past year... I've been primarily in Santa Fe and on the East Coast in New York and Massachusetts. Story seems to be what connects me to people in terms of the frame, but the actual picture is the connection with people. I really, really, really um, thrive in relationships and um, in watching people transform, watching their communities in positive ways transform. That's what lights me up the most. Story is fantastic. That's definitely one of the bigger gifts in my life and engaging in story work, digital story work. However, I'd have to say over the past decade, if there was a thread, it's traveling to different communities and having the great honor of working with people who are committed to social change, positive social change, and story being one of the anchoring tools and vehicles to achieve it. Does story create social change through the heart and the mind at the same time? Mm, I think so. I, th- I think so. Um, I believe so. And that's how I feel when I hear a highly charged story that connects to my heart. It always makes me feel like what action can I take? even if they have intentionally embedded a call to action at the end, it really doesn't matter. If I've been touched enough to weep or to cry and delight, I think, what can I do with that? What, because those emotions are so strong. So for me, in the way that I live my life in general, I connect the heart to the, to the, the, heart to the head to the hands. That's something that a good mentor gave me as a, a, a learning, a teaching. Yeah, that's beautiful because I, I, I'm a writer and I know that when I'm cooking, I'm contributing to my writing. Wow. And, wow. When, and somehow because there's a sensuality that goes up through my body from my hands to my mind and then changes the way I express my ideas. I would say that turmeric changes the way I express my ideas. Mm. If it's only by its, you know, you're, you're inspiring me to tell stories. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> if it's only going back to turmeric because of the, the absolute vibrancy of that orange mm. color, which then 
takes me to India. Or anyway, I'm here to hear your stories. No, we're here to exchange stories. Of course, of course. <laughs> um, so when you were talking, the word that came to me is um, is a word and a way of being that uh, means the world to me, and it's intimacy. Hmm. So, what does that word bring up for you, Mijan? I want to first go on the record by saying it can be really messy. Um, and I don't, I, I, well, let me say what I do believe. I think it's that connective glue, that super rich connective tissue between people who are not afraid to dip much further beyond the surface. Um, I find, especially in the United States, And this is one of the ways that we connect. We've only seen each other twice in our entire lifetime, well, that we know of. And I remember something you said at Trader Joe's. You gave me an honest answer. I just, in passing, as people do, as a common courtesy, we say, oh, hi, how are you doing? And you actually told me how you were feeling in that moment. And I just listened. I just, you know, it just landed in me and it moved me and I listened mm. and you said, oh, that's actually a, a little bit rare, you know, and I, I find that dipping much deeper below the surface, that's where intimacy resides. So you began by saying it can be messy. Mm -hmm. So uh, I love uh, mess. I mean, I'd like it all to be perfect and for there to be no mess, but uh, I do love mess in the sense that something percolates and something bubbles and something can be born from mess. So uh, reach into your bag of mess and share some mess with us. I, th so the most one thing that's been the messiest and most challenging for me this year is learning how many people and communities I can work with very deeply without it, uh, or with it still being a healthy thing for me. This season has been a season of mourning because all of my professional projects that are tied to academic institutions comes to a close. <laughs> And in general, it means I have to say farewell. And that, so the goodbye, I have not, that's been my mess. I have not been particularly good, not even good. Um, I haven't had grace and fuller understanding mm -hmm. with cycles that close. Um, and so losing a dear friend, an elder who, I don't know if you knew her, Margaret Stanici, very short, um, sweet, 97, she was 97, yeah. um, year old Japanese woman, uh, here in town. We moved the same year to Santa Fe and one, I'm totally going to get emotional. One thing that she kept repeating to me because we just became friends this season, even though we belonged to the same spiritual community and I would see her every week and I would just admire her. And I had like a little schoolgirl crush on her because she just was, she always had the two barrettes and she just had such sweetness. Um, and one thing she kept repeating to me and she wrote it in an email was how over the 97 years of her life, she came to understand that the challenging moments actually were just at the edge of when she had her greatest growth. And as a person, her evolution unfolded from there. And if she hadn't had those significant challenges, like including being in a Japanese internment camp, other aspects of her life would not have unfolded as deeply and profoundly as they did. So she was telling me to stop fearing my path in general to embrace all of it, including the mess. Whereas before, I felt like, screw the mess. I don't want the mess. I want everything perfect. And she just let me know in her 97 years that it really didn't roll out that way. <laughs> so I saw when you were speaking, I mean, it's, this is part of it that's so beautiful is you just gave 
us. You gave me sitting on the sofa. You gave me her her transmission. Mm. And to me, her transmission that I never saw before was that, of course, after con- contraction, contraction, as in giving birth, exactly, contraction, an expan- there's an expansion. That's right. And I never saw it so simply as now that you gave me her transmission. And so it's going to be a lot easier for me to deal with the moments where I feel I feel it's difficult to cross the Rubicon, I will be able to look at them as contraction mm. and as the contractions I've had when I was birthing my children. Oh, right. Contraction. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. Expansion, new life. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, I understood it before, however, only in my mind, really. It didn't touch my heart. And and give me grace that I, I really grace. needed and will need. Yeah, that's a, yeah. Grace with the mess, that's my goal. <laughs> grace in the mess. Yeah. 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 Well, there is, a, there is, well, some people say to me, well, you know, how come um, you feel like this at your age, I feel extremely alive and um, and I say you know there's only two ways to go either you get bitter or you get sweet oh <laughs> you know and I find that uh, even even pain is sweet because it's a sculpting it's mm-hmm. a it's a sculpting of the soul I wonder if you experience that only in retrospect. <laughs> I'm 41, so I think I have a little more <laughs> practice, um, hopefully gentle practice gentle. with that. Yeah, that that is my prayer. Yeah, gentle practice. I've definitely endured a bit in my life, and um, and I I the second part to what I want to share about Margaret and what I've learned this season is that I now see those moments in time when sculpting is happening, those painful points of life that are just, they're hard to go through. One of the big things is now I, uh, I, I met a hiker and they said, Oh, it's like Karen's these markers on the path that let you know you're on the right path. They're not guiding you forward in any one particular route. They're just letting you know you're still on the right path. And so I, I'm doing my best now to tell myself I can be more. My dad has a gesture. Um, he always would say, you know, Mijan, what can you accept with a closed fist? Open up your hand, open a bit more, soften a bit more. So when you talk about sculpting, what I do is I've, I've always braced, oh my God, and I've sprinted, how fast can I get through it? And now I'm, I'm doing my best, even if it's just a daily nuisance of some sort, if I bang my foot or what, as well as this, yeah, this losing um, or not losing, because I, I feel like, oh, she's just helping me more. I must have needed more on the other side. Uh, Margaret's passing, I'm, I'm much more open than I ever have been with death. Yeah, and I, I think that maybe that's part of the sculpting, you know? And the losing, I mean, uh, I was so impressed once I saw this um, uh, documentary about Suzuki Roshi. Uh, yeah, and uh, he was crying by a fence after he lost his wife and a student came and said but you are the 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 roshi of roshis how come you are you are crying and he said well, i miss my wife mm-hmm. and my tears have no roots mm-hmm. 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 and that just yeah yeah impressed me so much so there is loss i mean yeah yeah yeah. Each of us, we just have this vibration, this very, like, I will never forget your vibration. I never forgot your vibration from the moment I first saw you. Like, 
clockwise. Yeah. Oh my god. I mean. Wow. So that's the the atmosphere of a person. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. So my friend, lady explorer, what are you exploring? Mm. Well, this summer after. Three seasons of intense travel. I feel the most compelled to be at home, <laughs> in all honesty, uh, and to take a summer of restoration and nourishment here in Santa Fe. That's, it feels like a, a, a gift, a pot of gold <laughs> at the end of the rainbow. Um, and to spend time with my children, leave time to fall in love. I realize like that's a thing too. <laughs> um, yeah, and and plan for the next the next big season in the fall. Um, I like. Have you ever, are you familiar with Praxis Paulo Freire? Um, talking about these different, I see them as a, a upward cycle. And I think to myself, how can I tend to myself and the work path and the communities that I um, intimately engage in? And one of the best ways is if I feel restored before I go into the next big wave. Yeah. So that's, that's what's coming up for me, as well as ending this cycle on a super high, impactful note with, um, I was telling you a little bit earlier, with the Prison Birth Project, um, I got a chance a month ago, no, earlier in April, to produce a short audio documentary on one of the founders um, and the genesis of that organization's work. A big piece of it is an anti-shackling law that was passed in 2014 in Massachusetts. However, prisons have not adhered to that law. So women are still giving birth shackled. And um, I, I, right now, this is one of the things that is just gripping me with everything, just everything. And so our biggest intention is to set out into the world this short audio documentary that hopefully will touch other folks as much as it's touched me and they'll feel compelled to share it out as widely as possible. We're tracking it. We're using a, a tool so that when the founder of the, one of the founders of the organization meets with their state's attorney general, they can say, do you understand how many people support this law and the, uh, banishing of this inhumane practice. It has to stop now. It has to. There's a law in the books. Prisons have to adhere to it. There's no reason whatsoever why any person should give birth to their child and be shackled. Wow, this is this is absolutely huge. You you were sharing that before you started and. And I'm completely floored that that that's the case, and and especially that my daughter had her first child in the hospital, and after that she realized that if you're a healthy woman, to have a child in the hospital is insane, and she had a second child at home, and so. I really understand that the whole thing about giving birth is absolutely letting go. And so to be shackled is just so, such a crime. Mm -hmm. It's a crime. Mm -hmm. It's a crime against nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So thank you for doing that, uh, doing that work. Mm. Do you want to talk a little more about it? Um, sure. Yeah. Just that I started to, as I, you know, the process of editing really for me is an intense practice of consistently revisiting, revisiting, revisiting and refining. And then on a personal level, reflecting. And I wondered a couple of things as I listened over and over and over again to Marianne, one of the founders story. And what I 
heard in her story and one of the things that deeply resonated with me is that even though I have never been incarcerated and I hope to never be incarcerated, I could, because I've given birth, I could very easily drop into feelings of anger, frustration, and even rage that I live in a, you know, quote unquote, developed country that would not even continue, but apparently in some way support. At some point in time, someone thought this was a great idea, shackle women while they're giving birth. So I, um, it's not that I'm um, a naive person. It's not that I'm not experienced in the world and um, many inhumane practices and oppressive ways. Uh, However, there's some part of me as I was listening over and over and over again, where I just got more and more stimulated in a negative way to do something and to share to as many people as possible, hey, did you know that this this is still happening? Majority of the folks I've shared it with have said, no, I had no idea. What are you, are you sure? You know, it was almost the disbelief, not of me, but just that this country would ever think that that was a good idea, let alone to still have that practice in 2016. And, and, and that this would create babies who might seek to be shackled in in the future, that that would be their first imprint. I mean, for those who understand what I'm talking about, I mean, it's it's bad enough that uh, I have this thought that um, that some babies come in and they're put in these in these plastic cribs with plastic uh, plastic sides, and then I think that later on that's why we bond so much with objects and mainly with plastic. So the idea that that your first imprint would be to be shackled. What world is that going to create? How, how many children are born in prison? That I don't know. Right. I have to get back to you and let that you know if there's a statistic. Um, I, I think one is too many. Well said. Beautifully, beautifully, beautifully said. Yeah. So, I mean... I'm hesitating like this because um, uh, there's a there's a part of me that thinks I shouldn't mention this, but I want to know deep in your heart your experience of being a black woman and oh, how yeah. yeah I mean oh, and yeah. and here I'm sharing to you from my heart I mean the fact that I think oh I shouldn't mention this because uh, you know maybe. And I, I really want to expose myself in that way in asking you that question. And so I really want to know what, what your experience is, Mijan, your own experience in, in your heart, because I think it is so incredibly useful mm. to know that. I, gosh, I could take this question so many different directions. I, um, I realize One is that I have had the benefit of growing into being a black woman in the United States and leaving the United States. So um, I feel like I have a different context based on based on that experience of living in Salvador da Bahia, Brazil, which is the largest African diaspora. Layered into that is the fact that I was able to live in Brazil for a semester of research with my children as a single mother and um, and then to return to the United States. And so I have my own experience. I have the experience of listening to my children um, and, and knowing that their identity and life paths, I truly believe in my heart, have shifted as a result. So I'm going to give you a handful of things. I think we have time, yes? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I mean... I feel so isolated from this this true heart feelings. So I'm grateful. I can tell you um, one. Well, so Brazil. I can tell you Brazil. Um, for me, 
and the experience that my children shared with me too. Being in um, a place where everywhere I look around, everyone looks more or less like me, and um, and the same thing for my children. Uh, that's powerful, number one, and it reinforced how isolating, even in a beautiful. Um, city like Santa Fe, how mm-hmm. isolating it can feel when I don't encounter people who look like me and have had shared cultural experiences. Um, and so I'm mindful of that now that I've returned. Some of the most positive ways that I grew and I'm able to retain, however, I can tell it's time to go back and to get some more of that juice to, yeah, to immerse myself. I felt beautiful. I felt beautiful for the first time as an adult. It was a fleeting thing because um, as soon as I came back to the United States, that pretty much went away in a lot of ways. Um, United States can be a very oppressive place to be when you do not, when a person does not um, fit into a norm, and the norm that seems to be presented goes through mass media, mainstream media. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're supposed to weigh a certain amount. And it's really all targeted to what you're not. And that if you buy whatever product, then you'll be, you know, more acceptable or whatever, younger, beautiful. If you have straight hair, you should have curly hair, curly hair, you should have straight. I mean, it just is so weird. And there's a good documentary, uh, Misrepresentation. Did you ever... I haven't seen it's that a one. good one. Yeah. It's a good one. And it shows how, yeah, how the United States Western culture really gears up for that um, in negative ways with not great outcomes. And so when I was in Brazil, it was the polar opposite for me because I felt so affirmed. And for the first time, I really could hear polyrhythmic um, music all the time. People, the guys were drumming on the ceilings of buses and they're out on the corner in the beach playing capoeira. And they were, I mean, the thing that always, it gives me chills, they would touch my daughter. First off, kids are not shoved off somewhere. Elders are not shoved. Everybody's all over mixed together. And people would touch her. She's darker than me. And they would say, oh, que linda, que linda. Uh-huh. And it just filled me up. To, and they saw their mother, you know, in a different light with, with, with men. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> with men um, always trying to pick me up, you know. Right. Which was very affirming coming out of a long marriage. So there was that part of my womanhood that got, um, and motherhood that got, positively reinforced and loved up 24-7. I would also say that having my children in half days of school, that's the only thing that they do. Uh, There's a financial reason apparently around it. It means that more children can be served. Oh, in Brazil? Yeah, in the same building. So by having shifts of school, exactly. And at first... I complained to everybody who would listen to me, the administration, everyone. I said, you know, you all have these four-day weekends every month, you know, and you're the kids, what am I supposed to do with them in the morning? I can't believe this. And this, I will never forget, he was like the vice principal of the Jesuit school my son went to. And he said, you know, I'm looking at you and you're black, but you are truly American. And Americans seem to live to work. Here, we only work enough so that we can live. Mm-hmm. I hope you figure in your time here how to have a life, <laughs> get a life. That was his whole thing. He said, go to the beach, stay out late, dance, drink, eat, get going. You know, work and school, that's not all that life is about. That's only a piece. And so I finally got it at the end of that semester. It took me so long. I really resisted. I really, really, really resisted because I wanted to be allegedly productive. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had these research goals. And and in the end, I was like, oh, screw it. We live across the street from the beach. We should go to the beach in the morning. That's not going to hurt anybody. It's going to only enhance our days. And I learned um, 
from that experience a bit more humility with my son because he, in a Western education setting, is not who school is designed for. Uh-huh. He has, like many, 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 in fact, I would even hazard a guess to say most students do not enjoy um, sitting in a, a desk for seven hours in a row. He's the kind of person who learns by doing. And so to have a shortened school day, one of the biggest things that I learned was they trimmed all of the fat (laughs) because they had to from the school day. And a second thing that I learned about him picking up a foreign language very quickly and excelling academically was the very first day that he landed in that school, his teacher took him in a full embrace, hugged him so tightly and said, oh my God, you're this gift from God. We can't believe we're so lucky that you can't. For a child, for a person, not even a child, for a person to feel so loved and seen and witnessed and included immediately, you could have taught him 20 million things from that moment because he was completely open and receptive and grateful too. And the children, I mean, he was like a rock star. Oh my God, this American is in our class because I put them in a Brazilian school. I didn't put them in an American, you know, international school. He, it, it, that was the thing that changed the entire course of school for him. Here he is at the end of the compulsory stage, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade, he's finishing 12th grade next month. And it was the thing that set him on a very different path of understanding what kind of learner he is, what makes a healthy community for him. And also for me as a parent to understand, oh, my kid is not lazy. Oh, how beautiful. It took all of that weight off. All of that weight off. And he really, I mean, that does make me emotional. He needed me as a strong advocate and ally to show up over the course of his formal education because many teachers would say, we don't understand why he's not trying. And it's like the kid is bored out of his mind. He's just bored. And so that was another special, huge gift, especially as a, I feel like as a black woman in the United States where we have these really challenging statistics around how many um, of our black youth wind up incarcerated. They go, it, they call it a school to prison pipeline. Right, right, right. I, I, you've, I believe, lived in many countries and traveled mm-hmm. to many countries. For me, I had only been, I, before Brazil, I bust and backpacked immediately before Brazil to Mexico, through Mexico, for about six or so weeks. Um, because I had the great gift of working with, um, in that year before we moved, a dear sister friend named Mariana. And every day she would show up to work. We were both managing a free women's clinic at the time. And she would say, you're awesome. You're incredible. And I so needed to hear that, especially when I was separating. I really needed that, that reassurance and just love, you know? And uh, she had just come back from doing an eight-month trip through all of South America and Central America. And she said, you know, I'm going to give you this this tip. If you travel with your children as far as you want to go in Central America and then take a plane from there, whatever your final point is, to Brazil, you can pay only half for your children. And here I was squirreling away all my dimes. So I thought, oh, this is great. It never even occurred to me how rich um, slow travel can be. Yes, slow travel. And how many friends, we're still friends to this day, we would make throughout Mexico. And the importance of that particular part of the journey with my children, for them to see the country that borders the United States for themselves. I speak specifically about my son Isaiah because we were coming from a very privileged, affluent community in San Francisco where we lived and where he went to a 
private independent prep school. And he used to think we were poor because we didn't have three homes. We didn't own three cars. Like all of this that I kept thinking, what is this kid? Where is he getting it from? He was getting it from his peers. And so as we traveled through Mexico, or before, actually, as we were, you know, leading up to that time. Let me interrupt you for a minute. Yeah. Because I, so poverty was a, was a, in a sense, a greater way of feeling separate than being a person of color. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yes. That was very tangible for him. Wow. That we were separate because we didn't own three homes. I mean, not poverty, but I mean, whatever. His context. How, uh, his, that, his context yeah, at that time. Yeah. He was poor. Wow. That's huge. And so, as before we took the journey, people would say they'd reach out, you know, and clutch my arm and say, "Oh my God, Mijan, I can't believe you're doing this. You're taking your kids to," and they would literally say, "The third world." Yeah. And don't you know your children could be kidnapped there? Like all of these crazy things. And, I, and as a black woman, I would turn to them and very roughly, there was zero grace with it, say, excuse me, first off, do you know what you're talking about? Second, is this from experience? And third, I don't really think black kids are being kidnapped right now. Like, I just, do you understand the absurdity of all of what you're saying here? Wow. And so. Wow. How, how, how incredibly ignorant. Very, very, very. And my son also was included in this ignorance because as we traveled through Mexico, I would say, luckily, because of the slow travel, it unfolded day by day by day for him where maybe two weeks in, because people would stop us, we'd go to little remote towns and also most of the big cities on the Western, finally going in central to DF, um, uh, Mexico City. Mm -hmm. Um, He said to me, I feel the happiest and safest here. Why Why did all those people warn us how dangerous? And this was a decade ago. I understand, and I'm not advocating for people to hang out in Juarez or, you know, know border towns. I'm not naive, and I I really want to go on the record. And I understand that there is violence. He was the one, my son, though, at the age of nine, he was the one who said, those same people who are talking about all of the, the painting it as a picture of widespread 100% violence and being an entirely dangerous country, like such a broad stroke. He was the one who said, oh, my God, with his child wisdom, they're acting like there's no violence and people, especially black people, are not being killed. And this was a decade ago, being killed right in the United States. And I was like, Whoa. like, I even have chills saying it now for a nine-year-old to get it, to understand, let's go and dig a little bit deeper than what's on the surface being presented to us in mainstream media and what people, of course, take and amplify. Yeah. yeah. Let's go with the personal experience. And right. the personal experience is that um, traveling as a small little family women all the time on the buses would offer their food to us, who I know had much less money, financial resources. I also, you know, I taught my children, let's go with toys. You're going to meet kids along the way and you may want to trade or just gift. And to have children as we went along give back. I got horribly ill. They call it turista, right? I got ill at the end in Guanajuato, and then again in DF. And and I'll never forget, uh, again, being a Black American woman, how vulnerable I felt. And that, oh, maybe I had been so stupid, because here I was laid out in this room, and I was staying, thank God, we landed in um, Casa de los Amigos, the uh, Quaker large oh, friend oh, house dude. in Mexico wow. City. And at the time, um, the director's partner was pregnant, and it turned out she gave birth a couple weeks after we left. And she said, you know, I'm just wondering to myself, I see you, you're at the time I was a doctoral student, I, I wonder what you would do if you could just rehabilitate on your own for two or three hours. We'll watch the kids. So again, it was another moment of my children feeling like, 
they're embraced and held by the entire world. The outside world, alleged outside world, no, we're all interconnected. And this is not a scary place. It's actually a beautiful, wonderful place. So not even fast forward, just moving from that six or so week journey through Mexico and going to Brazil, we land, they, they have an extension. We had an extension of that very same theme of interconnectedness and, um, and people really believing in us and looking out for us and all of these alleged miracles happening in the middle of crazy mess. You know, I had bank fraud and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's nothing like having bank fraud and having no other credit cards. I mean, it's just crazy and recognizing, oh, no, 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 we're okay. We have food and maybe this is a time to hang out at the beach again. And I could resist this and I could be so upset. And I was, and then I realized there's nothing I can do about this. In all honesty, I've called everyone I can call and I've done everything I can do. And to watch my, my daughter, Indira, maintain through that entire time, she just has a genuine sense of joy everywhere she goes in all that she does. And she would say, oh, well, let's just play today. Like, okay, you still have no access to money. Okay, let's just play. And I'd be freaking out <laughs> the entire time across the street from the beach. We'll not go anywhere. We have to stay inside. Like, what? that was crazy. The beach is free. Um, and seeing, I have a visual in my mind as that season came to a close, looking at elders. So I, I've really had... Um, a great opportunity of feeling the power of intergenerational community and, um, and environments and societies. Right. Uh, I remember being on the beach with my daughter and we were taking pictures, all of us, you know, I always was with my son and daughter. Um, and she, she would say something like, let's get bikinis, mom. And I, so, you know, the, the shame of the Western world, so thick on me. Mm-hmm. And it was like, if I could have a swimsuit that was a full body swimsuit, I would have bought that. <laughs> However, in Brazil, they seem to have a notion of less is more. Yeah, yeah. So I was so insecure about it. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm just hanging. Although I had a great body, you know, this was a decade ago. I had a great body. Still have a great body. It's you're a body that gives me. You are. You're magnificent. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And it's uh, it was it was probably just as hard okay. for me to receive that as, then as it is now. However, I continue to work on it. One beautiful gift was looking to my left and seeing a much 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 older woman definitely a senior citizen with a thong on. And I mean, every ounce of her body looked like cellulite was dripped and draped over. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And then looking to my right and realizing everybody on this beach is damn near naked and just enjoying it and sunning and putting their coconut oil. And I'm like, are you kidding me? What is going on? And then I had a friend who said to me, you're the only one who doesn't get it. Just hang out. Enjoy. It's all beautiful. beautiful. We're all good here. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm what I'm getting is that separation is about context. That's so, you know, uh, parts of my shame in uh, talking about. So asking you about being black, I realize what it what it is is because having grown up in uh, in in Paris at the time where I grew up in Paris, which was in the fifties, where um, everybody was worshiping black musicians. I mean, uh, you know, Louis Armstrong was the the president of the world in the context of France. And, I mean, in general, uh, black people were considered more, be- more in the 50s, huh? more beautiful, more talented, uh, more sexy, more everything. Uh, of course, there's, there's here in the context, there's, but not Arabs, 
but not the Arabs. Oh, Arabs are considered uh, a threat. But black Americans, and because there were very few Africans, but black Americans considered magnificent. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I go back to what I was saying about shame, is that uh, I, I don't... Of course, I mean, if there was a person on the street at 11 o'clock at night with a hoodie on his head, whether he's black or white, I'm, I'm afraid because that's the nature of uh, the way we live. But I don't feel that, that um, separation that the regular American feels from a, from a black person in general, right? So it's interesting for me to explore that in myself, talking to you, because uh, I have a completely different uh, belief system. But I have talked about that with other black women, and I've felt rejected in the sense, I'm I'm long-breathed here, but I felt rejected in the sense of, well, why don't you, why don't you feel compassion for what's happening to us in this country. But I can't because my first imprint is is this French 50s imprint, uh, you see? And I never looked at it that way mm-hmm. before having this conversation with you, which is mm-hmm. wonderful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not my context. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel sorry for you for being black because mm-hmm. I didn't grow up in that context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that... uh, Yeah, I understand. I think I understand what you're saying because I, um, I, a lot of times when people will say black American and I I will say where though, from where? Because I feel like um, there are universal uh, experiences and then there are very many different experiences depending on your socioeconomic experience in life, depending on your gender, depending on... Are you in a rural area? Yeah. Are you connected in that rural area? Are you an isolated person in that rural area? Are you living in a city? What city? Is it Atlanta? Is it New York? Is it Miami? All of these places are so different and they have, um, I I think also a tendency of, um, well, let me back up. I also have had the great gift and benefit of what was that 90, 1998 through maybe what would that be 2002 somewhere in there I lived in New Orleans Louisiana and that's another very different place it was the first time um where I lived in a black city that had black leadership I went to a black university and I lived obviously in a black neighborhood and I dated black men all the time, all day long. Like, you know what I mean? It was black, 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 chocolate everywhere. And so I didn't know until I lived there how much I needed that experience. And then being there, I had um, the great gift also of having extended family who lives there And they let me know, you know what, we're not all having this one common experience because even in the South, New Orleans is a different kind of place. And especially at that time, unfortunately, there was like a murder every day. It was very violent. It was before Katrina. It also has, um, my experience of it was that uh, when I put side by side my experiences in New Orleans and Brazil... I can see similarities in what has been retained and nurtured uh, in culture, music, spirituality. Rhythm. Yes, yeah. yes. Rhythm. That was oppressed and silenced and cut off in many other parts of the United States. And um, for lack of a better term, what is gets lumped together is the black experience. Most white people have lost their rhythm. Yeah. That's well, what... Part of, I think, a, a lot of white states people. is that they had to cut it off, uh-huh. assimilate. Wow. Lose your language, lose your culture so that you can have privilege. And I don't think that that lose has your, served them well at all. <laughs> lose, your, lose, your, lose your rhythm. Give up your rhythm. Your roots. Your, yeah. Then it goes back to, I mean, this... <laughs> 
got a free art technician here. We could go on for hours and hours. Yeah, I forgot what I was going to say. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this other huge conversation is white people, a lot of white people, we don't know our shamanic origins. We don't know our indigenous origins. I mean, who are we? And that, again, I would call, which I was inspired in this God, lost, lost our rhythm. I feel like that's why I have witnessed in my own life experience um, this, when I see white folks questing and um, reaching out to make a connection with indigenous people, I always, what comes up for me is I want to say, research your own roots. You don't have to go to another culture. Yes, appreciate other cultures. Please do. Because that's definitely going to make the world a better place. However, go back in your own family lineage. Go back in your own culture. Learn your own native languages. If you're from, if your family was from Ireland, I had, uh, have you maybe interviewed or met Tim in town, the poet? He's Irish. And he said a fascinating thing to me that basically when he went back to Ireland, because he had been working in, um, Native American communities, he went to a hand, or not a handful, I think he's participated in many ceremonies. And he was astonished to go home to Ireland and recognize, wow, they call it something different, but they're doing ceremonial sweat lodge. I don't have to, or let me paraphrase, hopefully correctly, I can embrace what already is is in me, in my family, and in my family lineage and line. Um, and that really shifted him as a man, to tell you the truth. He no longer felt the need to seek outward anywhere else, more so to say what already exists that needs to be drawn up and forward. And I'm, I'm so grateful that he he got that before he became a father. It's enriched him as a man who's a father and a leader in the community and a poet. Yeah. Well, that brings us to the next conversation we will have uh, is our connection with the earth. I mean, the, the more lucid we are about our connection with the earth, the more indigenous we feel. If I know that... If I know I am that handful of earth that I pick up, then there's no doubt about my indigeneity. And if we share indigeneity, then we there's no separation between us, this uh, whatever adaptation we need to have to the place we, we're living. I received a great learning... From, or for me, it was a great learning from a First Nations woman, um, an elder, last month in March. And one of the things that she shared was this concept of this concept of interconnectedness and and the sooner that the world wakes up, to what indigenous peoples, and it's not just, oh, it's only First Nation people in Canada. No, indigenous peoples around the world have this great wisdom. It's her belief, this is what she shared to me, that we're all interconnected. When And that means the sky, that means the waters, that means the, the, the plants that nourish our bodies, as well as our air, right? Um, and the actual ground, Understanding the entire um, connectivity with that promotes a way of moving forward in the world where you are not intending to harm. Mm -hmm. You have a different level of consciousness. Mm -hmm. You greet the day and close out the day with ceremony and um, and reverence. Mm -hmm. And it makes it much, much, much more unlikely as well as challenging that you will promote or support 
destruction. So for me, I feel like the biggest shift from that learning is I constantly ask myself, you know, what is my connection here? And when I'm watching people, you know, I especially have been so uh, hurt by what Black Lives Matter has been able to, and I'm grateful, I feel hurt by, um, by what we've all had to witness. It's always been happening, unfortunately, in this country. Oppressive violence, going back to how do I feel being a Black woman. Mm-hmm. This violence is not new. It's not new. It's just that it's being recorded with phones. Mm-hmm. You know, the technology is new and amplified very quickly through social media. And so what I see as I've felt um, the hurt and the pain at having to up front in my face witness all of this is I've gone through the process, you know, first it was extraordinary anger and rage. And I'm just like, what the hell? Where am I living again? You know, Um, am I safe? Are my children safe? I especially felt that for my son because he has been targeted, uh, you know, a handful of times by security, by police officers. If he would be walking downtown, he's been called racial slurs. And this is a child you saw him uh, on the front of the newspaper for having positive accolades. He's a, you know, young leader and in town and he's gifted and he's a beautiful human being. And even with all of that, and I remember thinking, even with a mom with a doctorate in education at an Ivy League school, that's not enough to keep my son safe. Oof. And that has been one of the hardest, most challenging things that I've tried to reconcile. And I now as a just I think a coping mechanism that leads me a, a little closer, not completely, a little closer to understanding and forgiveness is trying to remember the interconnectedness when I see hate, violence, and murder at my people, right? And I just, I, I, I constantly ask myself where maybe have they been cut off? Where have they been hurt themselves? Where have they experienced, um, experienced (sighs) silo is too gentle of a word in this context. Where have they experienced being walled off, isolated, and obviously wounded where they would feel the great need and knee jerk reflection to kill people who look just like me? Taking it down to the simple, terrible formula that the color of your skin in some places. It's dangerous. It's Very dangerous. dangerous. Thank you, because I never I haven't I I really experienced it at this moment in my solar plexus. And I hope that this this echoes what we are both feeling right now. Mm. Um the truth, mm. you know, mm. that it that it echoes out because it's one thing to hear that, even to see it on fucking television. You know, there was there was a a story that touched me so much about Tiananmen Square, and it said, "Well, why is the why is this woman's story important?" Because she died on TV. I mean, when are we going to get it? Died on TV. I, 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 the core part of me that struggles with this is that I, I, I'm in disbelief that people are so desensitized that it doesn't move them to immediate concrete action to say this stops today. I cannot be complicit in whatever the government or the police, or if you're talking about a formal education school where we saw, I think a year ago, 
uh, the child being drug in a classroom, it, that this cannot happen. Not one more vote or missing vote or stolen vote. Not one more of my tax dollars. None of it. All of this shit ends now. I think this is a good place to take a break. I see you and I could talk for hours and hours. Thank you for your grace and beauty, Mijan. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I invite you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I accept again. 